To be human is to understand that, as particularly once you mature, you, you constantly have decisions to make about how you will present yourself in public space. Okay. It's called self-presentation. Uh, other scholars call it um, impression management. Sure. And we manage the impressions of others. We try to cast an image of ourselves, publicly speaking. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok, the podcast about the people you meet in the city that makes a hard man crumble. Welcome to Brood in Bangkok. This is Siddhant. As outsiders to Thailand, it's very hard to get all of Thai culture right away. Sometimes you just don't know about certain aspects of, say, leadership because you don't have access to it. And even if you did, you don't actually understand the context. Not every culture is welcoming and open to every single aspect of how they do things. This is why we need experts to help us understand this with their own journey and their own research into this, into these subjects rather. I spoke to one such expert, Dr. Larry S. Persons. Dr. Persons is a fascinating figure because he was born here in Thailand and grew up here for most of his life. And he actually grew up in Loi, which is a fairly remote province. And this is back at a time when Thailand was not very developed. So he's really seen the country grow and change over the many decades that he's been here. Dr. Persons actually focuses on leadership and in, in particular, Decoding Thai Leadership. His book, The Way Thais Lead, Face a Social Capital, is considered by many to be a groundbreaking book in this very, very uh, interesting but sort of underexplored area. So many of us work in uh, offices that have a lot of Thai staff. We have a lot of Thai colleagues, maybe Thai managers and bosses. But they seem to not treat us the same way they treat each other because the way their idea of leadership works is very different from how we perceive it. Dr. Larry was kind enough to take me through some of the concepts that he has explored through his research and experience in Thailand, working with and coaching executives across the country. Uh, it's a very illuminating discussion that we have he introduces me to concepts and topics about leadership in Thailand that I just didn't know existed. So for any of you who, is, who are looking to understand more about how Thai people see each other in a hierarchy within an organization, whether it's the most uh, conservative uh, corporate Thai environment or a new young startup that is trying to break some of the rules, a lot of how Thai people work and relate to people in power, these concepts still carry over. So take some time to listen to some of the concepts that Dr. Larry talks about. And if you want to learn more about it in depth, please go buy his book. We've left a link for uh, purchasing it online in the description below. We're here with Dr. Larry S. Persons, and uh, he has founded CQ Leadership. 
and he's written a lot of books. I mean, he's written one very spectacular book, which I still haven't got around to reading, but I really, it's on my list. Uh, it's about, uh, it's called The Way Thighs Lead, Face as Capital. Uh, and it brings us to a very important time, uh, brings to a very important space in, in this cosmopolitan city of Bangkok that we're in. We kind of take it for granted that everything is globalized and we kind of just treat the Thai culture as the backdrop over here. But this book, book puts it front and center and we're going to get to talking about the book. But first, uh, Dr. Larry, uh, so glad to have you on here. Thank you. And uh, so can you tell us a bit more about uh, what you do on a daily basis with CQ Leadership? Yeah, uh, our specialties are Thai culture, Thai leadership, and cultural intelligence. Those are the three main areas of expertise. Right, right. And this is for uh, companies that are trying to like open up uh, over here, like multinational companies that are setting up and things like that. Or what kind of clients do we do you have? Yeah, good question. It's it's actually for. There are two perspectives, and they're both equally valid. We help multinational companies, and particularly non-Thai managers and, and uh, senior leaders, to adjust and become more effective in working with Thais, for sure, and adjusting here to the, to the culture and living. On the flip side, we are helping Thai companies who are turning global now to be less monocultural and to be poised to to join the global scene. Okay, so it's it. Did it start out as one thing and become the other thing, or or were both always the objective all along? I had both in mind when I arrived. I mean, I've been here. The company is three plus years old, which is fairly young. Yeah. But so I've been here a long time. So right. yeah. I had ideas of that it the the expertise could flow or be add value both ways. Okay. Yeah, I mean, uh, when we chatted earlier on the phone, uh, you told me about uh, your time here in Thailand. Would it be fair to say that your family is from the United States, but you're from Thailand, or how do you how do you identify yourself? That's a good question. In some ways, I feel like I never fully belong anywhere. Right. But I feel like I belong here a lot more than I do. In, in the United States, where my father was born. My mother came from Toronto originally. Um, I, if, if you ask my wife, um, who is American, she says I complain a lot more in America. In fact, she said to me, if, if she complained here half as much about the culture as I do there, it would be unbearable for me. Um, <laughs> so uh, I, I I tend to critique American culture a lot. Okay. So I think as an adult I've come to understand that although I look like a a, a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant yeah. gringo, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm uh, very much more complex than that. Yeah, I'm sure you are because uh, you were were you born in Thailand? Yes, or? I was. Okay, so can you tell us a little bit more about? Uh, your family here and sure. your time when you grew up here. Sure, yeah. Uh, my mom and dad arrived here in Kong at the at the port there in 1949. Okay. And uh, 
they went out and studied the language and Quran. My, my parents were missionaries, okay. and Protestant missionaries. And they studied the language in Quran for about a year, and then uh, they moved to Lillian province up in the northeast. Yeah. And uh, this was a long time ago, and life was quite different back in the day. Yeah, I, can, I can't even imagine, actually. Yeah. It, it was unbelievable. First, first of all, the only way my dad got into that province was uh, he rode a uh, sort of shotgun with the, with the uh, Ross Paul, which used to be like the government-sponsored UPS store, and uh, that's the first way that he, he, he went in because he didn't have a car. There was one car in the whole province when, when he first moved there. And one. When you say that, you mean like one privately owned vehicle? Or one vehicle. Period. One vehicle. In the whole province. It belonged to the governor. Okay. Or he was using it. Um, yeah. And my dad brought the second car in. Uh, I don't know how they survived back in the day. We are so pampered now. No running water. They had to have to buy their water from push carts uh, coming up from the Lily River. Uh, in these beeps, these tin cans, and then there was no gas, cooking gas, so you have to use coals to boil your water, and then no no electricity, so absolutely no fans, on the, no, certainly no air conditioning. Yeah. How they how they survived, I do not know. Five kids, uh, they didn't have five when they moved there, but they kept making them. Yeah. And. Uh, and, and so it was incredible, there were incredible sacrifices. It was wild. Um, back in the day, actually, there were no roads out to what are now the districts. Um, so, you know, whether it was Dansai or Tali or any of these distri- districts, it was just ox cart trails. And that's where my dad started taking his Land Rover, sort of exploring in the province. And a lot of times they would have to, you know, like shoot their own, you know, something to eat out there because they'd be out there for weeks on end, or right, yeah. a tree would fall down. So it was wild. I mean, there were monkeys, there were tigers, sightings of tigers, wild elephants. Uh, it was a much different yeah. age, age than now. It, it feels like a, a different era. Pretty much. Very different. You're not going to find it again. No way. Yeah. No. So, uh, so you grew. You were born in Lloyd. No, I was born here, just down Bangkok Christian Hospital. Okay. Uh, on Siloam Road, and but very quickly, you know, after a week or so, went up to Lloyd, and that's where the first six years of my life were. Okay. So um, there's not a lot of infrastructure. So what? How did your parents had to educate you or teach? Is there a school? Like what was going on? Yeah, uh, when it came time for a formal school, uh, there was only one option really, and it was a boarding school. Okay. And the boarding school happened to be in Dalat, Vietnam. Oh, okay. During the war. That's a brave, brave step. Yeah. yeah. And you know, my mother lived to be a mother, but she sent at the age of six, uh, she sent off each child. Uh, to, to this boarding school. It was heart-wrenching for her and actually pretty devastating for, for us as well. It's a very, very young time to leave home and to be with surrogate parents in a strange place. 
Right. Yeah. So you so then you went to boarding school in Vietnam, came back for vacation and such. Yes. Yes. Okay. And that was in Loya as well. Yeah. Yes. In the in the early years, the first two or three years, and you know it's, we can't appreciate because you take so much for granted now. I mean, there were all there were was you could you could send a telegraph. You know, I mean, you could telegraph messages. Uh, but, you know, if you were wrote a parent, let's say you broke your leg or something at school, and you sent the letter back to your parents, and they, you know, two months later, we get, you get an empathic, you know, a compassionate letter. For, oh, we're so sorry to hear it. You've forgotten about it. Your leg is healed. You're walking fine. Yeah. It's over. And so there wasn't that sense of relational iteration back and forth between your parents. It was like, I almost had to pretend they weren't in the world okay. to survive. I, yeah, I guess it's also that there's no room for small talk and things like that. You just kind of had to imagine this entire thing coming to the coming to be like, oh, I have parents and they want to know how I'm doing and they this is what I'm doing and that's it. Well, it was, it was standard fare for everybody. Right. Um, and the older kid, you know, the parents lie and the parents didn't want, it, want this separation. I don't think they hated this that much they didn't you know uh, they didn't want the separation at all it, it ripped their hearts out but there was really no other there were no other options at the time that were really viable and so they would try to say oh it's going to be great you're going to have friends and your sisters will be there and it'll be fine and you have dorm parents they really care about you and but once you get there wow age six it's uh it, it rocks your world to yeah. suddenly realize you're uh, you don't know quite how far your parents are away and how long four and a half months is until yeah. you see them again. Wow. So uh, you have older sisters? Yes, I have three older sisters. Um, one was born in Shanghai, China. Okay. And uh, two, and then uh, one older sister was born here in, in Bangkok where I was and then another in Toronto and then my last one in Bangkok. So okay. I, I have one younger sister. Oh, okay, so uh, you're the odd one out on this one. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, did you like get an understanding of what it would be like from your sisters, or would they just like, yeah, you'll see? What you mean from school? Yeah, for school and things like that. Boy, I sure can't remember. Uh, I, I just remember the buildup was very positive, which right. made the, the shock of actually being there and needing to adjust. It's yeah. Yeah. But sometimes we just want to g people up so that they don't you know, so that they don't feel too bad or anything and that they feel like, okay, it's something exciting to look forward to, but it's like, it's the best laid plans fall apart, I guess, good intentions and all that. It's, it's pretty dramatic actually for a child at that age. Right. So, uh, I'm assuming that at some point the, the reality of the war also kicked in and you had to probably move, move somewhere else. Yeah. We, uh, Basically, we got news that it was getting very hot and very dangerous, and uh, Viet Cong sightings very near the campus. And so, in the course of two to three days, the school moved uh, overnight. Uh, there were four C-123s uh, that the American Air Force provided, and we packed everything in. We were traveling with a pillow and and a bag, and uh, we. School life changed dramatically, coming to hot, muggy Bangkok from the cool highlands of, mm -hmm. of, of Vietnam. 
Okay, so you've gone back to Bangkok then? We came to Bangkok for less than a year. Okay. Uh, right across from the American Ambassador's house on Wittyuk Road, Wireless Road. Yeah. There's a hotel called the Athene Plaza Hotel. Right. Right on that spot there used to be called the American Club. And uh, we rented that whole uh, piece of property for okay. a temporary location for this boarding school. I see. And we were there for, for, like I said, a little less than a year. Okay. So this wasn't the American School of Bangkok, though. No. That's a different one. No. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, so then you finished up in Bangkok and then then what? Then you went back to Vietnam. Yeah. That was, no, it was just three. That was in third grade. And... Uh, no, we moved then to the Cameron Highlands of Malaysia. Right. And uh, the, the, the weather was really nice there. It's 4,000. Where is that exactly? I'm it's right in the center of the spine of Malaysia, uh, right up in the, in the tropical rainforest. Okay. Um, it was surrounded by mountains, cool weather, generally cool in the, in the mornings, very uh, pristine. Uh, it was... It was a dream for a for a, 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 a young man or a child who's nine years old, and particularly when you get into your early teens, uh, the, the sense of freedom. We explored every trail in the whole area, and uh, I mean, you go over this one mountain from the school, and it's there is nothing but dense tropical rainforest for 300 kilometers over to the east coast. So, in fact, we had a teacher get lost there one time for three days and oh wow almost died that sounds scary <laughs> but it was it was it was just wonderful how you know uh, there were snakes and bull monkeys and all kinds of birds and uh, just so many hiking trails yeah it was it was a fantastic place to sounds like a young adventure novel yeah, yeah it was it was really great Wow. So you were uh, already off to a flying start with a childhood, huh? like just traveling a little bit, not because you wanted to, but because you kind of had to and sampling bits of Asia and really seeing what, what it's all about. So did, it, did that already start informing your uh, worldview and did you oh, begin sure. to see like the differences between Asian people right away? Yeah, for sure. Um, Education, you know, shapes you, and, that, and all my education was in an American system, you know, American educational system. Uh, whether it was this American boarding school or whether it was back in you know, my post-secondary education in America, but it doesn't. I don't think it in, it shapes quite like childhood experiences do. Okay. Uh, the the socialization at that age is so deep and so profound. And it's really taken me a lifetime to understand that I'm not, I'm not an American. At least some of my most deep values are more Asian. And uh, you know, if you ask my poor wife, she'll tell you I'm not, I'm not an American. She, uh, um, she has noticed in, in many ways how Asian I am. More of a collectivist, um, more respect for authority, more sense of indebtedness to um, parents, aunts, uncles, and um, um, there's a subtlety to it, isn't there? There's also oh, like it doesn't it it cannot be stamped 
on you when you walk around in the sense that you can't tell like if i were to talk to you at a, a random event i would not think you're not anything but american like you right. you, you sound you look you seem very american to me but this this can only come out through actually your daily interactions that people can see i guess yeah there are more and more people like me in, in the world now you know where we used to be able to, to judge a person's cultural mix by just taking a, a glance at them but more and more because of mobilization and, and migration and people moving all over the world uh, there are many surprises and there, there are people where you can't even tell by their accent where they're from originally and maybe they're instead of having one primary culture there's there are a mix of three or four primary cultures so they're very complex when you try to map them in terms of where are they in the cultural scales you know and i'm and i fit that category uh, that's also very interesting that you brought this up already because that's your area of study isn't it like interculturalism yeah. and and cultures in general how did you manage to get into that like what what brought you to that Oh, was it it's it's in my blood yeah I mean it's not my blood literally obviously but it's it's in my in my veins it's it's in my worldview um, I I love from childhood I loved cultures I've been curious and I love the variety of, of differences in culture I appreciate uh, diversity um, and I've enjoyed, I love food and the various foods from various countries. And so there was this diversity and richness um, of more than one way to look at the world. Mm -hmm. That kind of reminded you that although we all think there's one best way to look at the world, there really isn't. There, there are a whole lot of different ways that are valid in their own, on their own right. Uh, in, in terms of looking at the world. And so, so I think uh, I didn't escape ethnocentrism, which uh, which is basically, uh, it's like, this is ethnocentrism is the way I explain it. Okay. If, if, if cultures were mountains, uh, we all admit, we say, I see those mountains out there. Well, yeah, there's another mountain, we have that mountain. It's just that our mountain is Mount Everest. So okay. we're, we're looking down with our primary culture, we're kind of looking down at all the others and judging them as being a little less than, not making quite as much sense. Hmm. And uh, I, none of us were born that way, but none of us escaped becoming ethnocentric, no matter how tolerant we are. Yeah, there's there's a certain amount of, of, of judgmentalism deep within, and yeah. I didn't escape that. But I think it's it was softened somewhat by so much exposure to so much diversity. So between yeah, you know, yeah, city life versus country life where I grew up, and uh, you know, different countries. You know, going back from time to time to America, mm-hmm. where I felt like a fish out of water. But still, that that exposure and then being in a number of Southeast Asian countries, exposed to a number of languages, and the boarding school where I went, people sent their children from all over the Indonesian archipelago, all, all up to the school, uh, all over from Vietnam, Laos, uh, Thailand, um, Cambodia. Uh, we didn't have many from Burma, I don't think. But so there's this rich diversity that yeah. in cultures and appreciation of that diversity. I guess the 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 way I would see it is this ethnocentrism is 
mostly because we think that it's just one rigid lens that we look through because that's the one we grew up with. But actually, you know, you, as human beings, we tend to have a default base upon which we build things. I mean, you can't keep switching through stuff while you're trying to make sense of something. So I think maybe that's why we tend to have like one view over the others in some ways, you know. And um, that's it's it's pretty amazing if you actually like zoom out and think about it. But I don't think that happens too much on a daily basis. I mean, you just kind of go with what you're doing and hope that it works out. I guess. Well, I hope not. I, I hope I hope that I'm a little more intentional than that. Um, the whole idea of ethnocentrism is that you're not trusting anyone else. Uh, to interpret reality. Okay. You're you're trying you're trying to impose your reality and your interpretation on on someone else. Right. And the key to breaking it is to become curious enough and respectful enough that you explore other realities. The other what's called a lens. You know. You, yeah. That that the lenses that other people are looking for and. So when you see strange behavior, and sometimes it even feels offensive, but not always, and you see strange behavior, and, and you say to yourself, I wonder what it means from that person's culture and from that person's point of view. That's the thing we do. We, ethnocentrism is it's so complex and different out there, we try to simplify the world. And it's it's, it's a, um, reducing the world to something much more simple than it, than it really is. It really is, okay. Because yeah. it feels more controllable and more understandable at that point. Yeah, that you can make sense of it, that feeling that, okay, right. now it makes sense. Yeah. Like, but and, and, we all, and we all do it. Yeah, but it should be okay that it doesn't make sense because it can't for everybody all the time and that's okay to do, right? Right, yeah. yeah. It's just I think it's hard as humans to be around stimulus after stimulus after stimulus that doesn't make sense and for somebody that's recently moved here to bangkok you know there's so many things wonderful things to enjoy but there's also a lot of, there's a barrage of things bombarding you your, your senses that are they don't fit they don't uh, it doesn't seem right uh you wish you could fix it right. uh, doesn't go away even if you've been here your lifetime i can see that yeah so when did you study, uh, when, where did you study uh, cultural studies and get your PhD and stuff like that? Yeah, uh, my first, my first, uh, my undergrad degree is actually in psychology. Okay. And it was very interesting to me and I love people and I love trying to figure people out. So it was great. The only thing is, you know, I heard about Freud, you know, and Carl Jung and just uh, any time I would hear a theory of something, I would be saying, now sitting back there in the villages in Northeast Thailand, would any of this play? And more often than not, I'd say, no. They'd say, what the heck are you talking about? Uh, and so I was always kind of challenging the education I was receiving because of my other worldview. Right. All right. But enjoyed that. And then immediately uh, after my BA in psychology, it was during a time when the Lao refugees were just pouring across the Mekong River into Northeast Thailand because the Laos had just fallen in 1975 to the communists. And so it was a huge crisis, a humanitarian crisis for the Thai government. 
And I was fresh out of college and I could speak basic Thai, more, more childhood Thai, but enough that I could, um, I was of, of value to an NGO. So I came out for a year uh, and, and worked with refugees in refugee camps, met them at the border, uh, arranged for food and some sort of shelter until they were processed into the refugee camps and then helped them develop uh, projects within the camps. Um, my, my degree in psychology didn't help me very much trying to help them figure out how to do a pig farm okay. or whatever they were doing. Yeah. Uh, but So then from there I went back and I actually did a three-year uh, uh, Master of Divinity. I'm not sure it may be any more divine. But, uh, what is that even? I don't even know what that is. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in, in religion. You know? Okay. okay. Uh, and yeah. so uh, after that, I worked for a few years in the States and uh, then came out here. And for the most part, from that point on, I have been training, Thai, working with Thai leaders. And it's been like a grand project to understand the Thais, how they lead, and to understand much more about how to train good leaders. Okay. So how did that sort of uh, realization come about that I want to train leaders specifically? Because you could have gone anywhere with this, uh, you know, studying the culture of Thailand. So what drew you to leadership in particular? That's a great question. I don't think I've ever been asked that before. Uh, I'm not even sure. I think a lot of people also are kind of, at least for me or when I've met other expatriates that have come here, they are curious to understand what their Thai co-workers are about as a group of co-workers. And I don't know too many people that have worked for Thai bosses, but even they seem to have like a, uh, a curiosity towards it. But I don't think anyone has really delved deep into the subject that I know of personally. So was it something like that, that you saw some people doing doing some work and you thought, you know, there, there must be a way to make this communication easier or, or make this scenario easier for both sides. You know, I, thought, I think I got a sense as a young adult working around, you know, emerging Thai leaders, I got the sense that they, there were many obstacles to rising in the system. Okay. And actually what led me, I, I was training, I had started an NGO up in Chiang Mai and uh, was working with training leaders in provinces for uh, many years. And uh, I noticed I had, there were questions rising. This is why I did my research. There were questions that began to rise that I could not answer and no one else could either. And I, and I, I the presenting question for my research was, how is faith, the idea of not these Thai faith values, ideas of human worth, how are they leveraged by Thai leaders to gain the cooperation of followers? That was my presenting question. Another way of saying it is, um, where are the healthy pathways for, for leaders to emerge? And how, where are they? I couldn't see them and I couldn't find them because of the the approach to leadership that was taken and the it's it's the Thai phrase but it's more the instrumental exchange between leader and follower 
right. um, where basically leaders are manipulating followers for their purposes like pawns. And I thought that can't possibly create the best leaders for the future. So I wanted to study more of this. And that's what drove me uh, to go back and do a PhD okay. through an organization, I mean, not through uh, a school called uh, Fuller School of Intercultural Studies. It's in Pasadena, California. All right. Okay. And I, they helped me to frame my design, my research, and, and uh, yeah. So you use that, you used ethnographic techniques, is that correct? Yes. Um, and and took you how how long did you take to research it and put it all together? What would you say? Yeah, I was on on campus for about 18 months. Um, during that time, I did my field research, first field research for two months in the tail end of uh, 2005, and uh, then I went back with my. 60 hours of digital recording of Thai leaders. So these were long interviews, uh, some shorter, but uh, long interviews with leaders at every level, from the sub-district level all the way up through to prime ministers, some former prime ministers, and one who became a prime minister. Uh, but also s sort of selective uh, um, sampling. So I wanted, you know, university students, you know, a few of them, so a lot of university professors, policemen, uh, border patrol policemen, um, uh, soldiers, um, priests, you know, uh, you know Buddhist, Buddhist yeah. monks, yeah. Uh, teaching monks, and uh, so I got real a lot of diversity in the, in the voices, and um, you know I went back with all these digital recordings and sat down and just listened and then it began emerging, uh, the storyline began emerging of the things that I write about in my book. Okay. So up until this point, you've been working primarily within uh, non-government sector in Thailand and right. just sort of uh, developing various, like first with refugees and then did you move into other areas or? Yeah. Uh, at first it was just with refugees with you know, relief work mostly. And then after that it was it was leaders in the provinces, yeah. uh, not high-profile leaders, and uh, a lot of emphasis on integrity in leadership right. and uh, principles of, of what does it mean to lead with virtue. Okay. And that's what led me to the tail end of my book because the more I studied uh, Thai leadership yeah. uh, and, and dug into three sources of power available to Thai leaders, uh, and the first is just authority which is you have your, you have, uh, your power is invested in your position and in the legal code that defines what you're allowed to do and what you're not allowed to do, yeah. what you have authority to do, traditional authority. And, and people that have to recognize that. Right. And yeah. it's, it's, not it's the chain of command. Yeah. It's sanctioned. It's legitimate. And the next one is, is non-defined, but it's, it's, um, it's, it's influence. And influence is usually, it's, talk about it as the carrot. It's, it's the idea that you've got resources that someone else uh, wants. And uh, as long as you make those available to other people, usually with strings attached, then you begin to build your control over others. I see. So I explored that. But there, there aren't just two. There, there's a third one called Marami. And, and so I dug deeply into that. And the more you dig into Marami, you're going to 
the deeper you go, the you're going to see that it's related to virtue or vir virtuous behavior as a leader. And that, that really intersected with where I had been and how I had been training leaders from the start. Okay, so you were actually training leaders at, at the front lines or at just generally in various institutions around Thailand. And, and that's when you started to stumble upon these concepts and then begin to categorize and refine them. Uh, the ones that we're already familiar with is control and uh, recognizing the, the power of the leader as in the person who's on the top of the chain of command or higher up the chain of command. Uh, then we have influence or I'm sure there are many phrases for this or terms for this, but it's more like what you can provide to them that you can get from them later. Right. And so the strings attached are that you can have this thing that I'm giving to you. I didn't have to give this to you, but at some point I'm going to come and collect. Right. Is that, is that right. a fair way of putting it? It's, it's building uh, power through uh, relational indebtedness. Relational indebtedness. Okay. And then the third one is a fun is a relation of related to virtue. So that that means that the the relationship should be virtuous, the company should be virtuous, or the the figurehead, the person, the leader should be virtuous. Well, hopefully all, but I mean, hopefully virtuous leaders are going to create more virtuous followers who eventually become virtuous leaders. I mean, that's the concept, but. Um, it, it starts with the leader. It starts with the intent of the leader. The, the, actually, the itikon, which is influence, and barami, which is, I call it, accumulated goodness or um, moral strength, uh, they're, they're very parallel, but they look almost identical in terms of the social exchange going on. The difference is in the intent of the leader in doing something in the first place. For, for for the follower. And when, when the intent is to indent the person so that someday you're going to come and cash in, and, and, and it's like investment. I'm making an investment. I'm yeah. pulling you into my influence, my, my shade, the shade of, of, of my influence. Um, eventually, someday they're going to come, they're going to come and collect, and that's exactly how they control, uh, gain greater and greater control. And it's not, and it's, you know, it has to be sustained by continual, continual activity, and uh, it, it, there are no givens. You're not, you're not going to receive a salary. You know, you're creating your own, uh, your own power, your own money base. It's, it's all created by what, by, by you. So you can never rest easy. So it's kind of like a shadow system of power. It's not, a, it's not a formal system of power. It's like it's not going to be rewarded with. You know, it's, material it's, not, it's not socially sanctioned. It doesn't mean it's it's illegitimate in terms of legally illegitimate necessarily. Although some of it yeah. is, maybe a lot of it is, but um, it's it's uh, it's just not sanctioned by by societal codes or by institutional codes. Um, and so it's quite a different model altogether. Barami is very similar to it, except that. Uh, it, it all begins with the leader's heart, the reason that the leader wants to have power, and you, the way that the leader wants to use power for the good of others. Okay. Um, 
I noticed a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of questions to ask here, but uh, one of the things that just struck me was, you say the intent of the leader and when, when they see their subordinates, uh, it, there are obviously leadership styles and preferences even within these cultures, in every culture, let's just be honest. So would, would people look for the weakness in a subordinate that, uh, would they look at that weakness because they find that the subordinate is very capable or is it that there is a weakness and therefore I can exploit it? Is that something that people like, is that something that's important to this discussion at all? Because power can come in any forms. People just like to have power, but some people see a person that they feel like I need power over that person. So I need to find a chick in the armor for that. Is that like, uh, or is that too nefarious? It's more like, I think, identifying people that will be useful. Right. That's what it is. So the capable, the capable few are usually yeah. subjected to this. But you got to somehow attract them. And then once you get them under your influence, you got to keep them. But you also got to keep them in their place. And that's, that's why what, people that's with, that rule by influence, they rule by um, trying to woo people in with what they can offer them. But also they rule with fear. Right. And I'm not talking just mafia. Hmm. One, of the, one of the most regrettable misunderstandings of the whole influence model is that it's only the mafia and the gangsters that behave this way. <laughs> I would say it is the, by far the most dominant paradigm of leadership for Thai leaders. Okay. So you don't have to be a gangster to actually build your fortunes. Okay. With with this uh, leadership paradigm. Okay, I think what it's also very difficult because some some of this stuff stuff seems very I don't want to say obscure but hard to imagine. Is there any way we can you can like provide an example of how this could work theoretically or a, a simple one that you've seen so that people can have an understanding with with an example of what we what we're talking about. I mean, it could be a very uh, simple leadership model you know maybe someone who runs a store and has a few employees and you know wants to keep a couple around extra time or something like that. it's applicable to almost every level of leadership right um the the authority piece is pretty simple um anywhere you have a title and you have any kind of a hierarchy or reporting system whatsoever and it's all legitimized power at every level of, of in, in that organization. Uh, generally speaking, the game is played looking upwards. You need to win the heart of the boss. Right. And so these are in all the hierarchies, certainly in the military, certainly in the police, but we shouldn't think only that. I mean, it's also in universities, corporations, corporations, corporations yeah. uh, guilds, all, temples, uh, you know, Buddhist temples, uh, it's in, it's in many, many, it's very dominant and, uh, in, in, in society at large. The thing about it, there are, there's a huge limitation to it. One is, a couple of limitations. One is, um, you, okay, first of all, good news is you've got pretty much guaranteed power. At least people have to cooperate according to what you're authorized to, to wield, the power that you're authorized to wield. And they've got to cooperate with that. 
So in a way, you don't have to work quite as hard to get the cooperation of others, as long as you've got the position and you got the, I call it the stick, you know. Uh, you've got the, the ability to wield a stick and they do what you say or there's consequences kind of thing. Yeah, and no one's taking the stick away anytime soon. No, well, right, that's true. But yeah. the downside of it all is once you leave that position, you're nothing. Right. Uh, I'll just give you an example of this. It's in my book, actually. There was a, a military, uh, an Air Force, a high-ranking Air Force, very high-ranking Air Force guy. And he was just uh, an absolutely nasty guy. And he ordered people or all of his uh, you know, lower-ranking uh, officers around. He was very impatient. He was very unkind. Uh, he was just, I'm being kind in the use of my words, he was, okay. he was just a really nasty guy. And he was in incumbent, he was in power for a long time. The people had to be afraid of him, but because he treated them so poorly, you don't have to treat people that poorly in, a, in an authoritative structure like that, yeah, but he did. You still have the authority, right? Right, right. but it, it was like, the Tai Se Chai Am Na, which is, you know, you, you, you're abusing your authority. Basically, you need, to, you need to show it off. You need to make a point every so often. And, and what happened actually literally in the story is that he finally retired. And one day he was out on the golf course, on the military golf course, and a few of the younger uh, soldiers uh, were came along and they saw him there. And they all just spit in his direction because he was nothing anymore. Yeah, and they couldn't, he couldn't do anything to them, I guess. Uh, yeah. And they would have never done that had he had treated them differently. But so I mean, that's the authority paradigm, okay? Yeah. And the other one is, is it's just, it is so ubiquitous, it is so everywhere that it's easy, very easy to miss. But um, in most cases, leaders, okay, the downside again of authority is this, you can't gain, you can't get ahead as fast. What you need to do, and this is in my book by the way, but you, yeah. you need to combine the paradigm of authority with influence. And, and so they, this is what they do all the time. So although they have authority according to the code of the institution, what they then do is use their, their advantage to gain influence over people. They play favorites, they reward certain ones below them, and the, this is what creates a whole uh, a circle whole, of loyalty. A whole group of yeah. suck-ups as well, yeah, yeah. a sycophantic behavior, um, uh, where, where the whole idea is you got to win the heart of the boss, so the ones who suck up the most are the ones who get dragged up as the boss rises. Okay, but that's a mixture of the two paradigms actually. It's, it's um, so the yeah the second one the influence paradigm is just any there is it, it it comes out of the hierarchy the natural hierarchy that still is very dominant predominant here in Thailand and the whole idea is you've got to show respect upwards and so when if they want to do something for you you're very grateful but you very quickly begin to suspect so what where are we headed with this relationship uh, okay. and it, it indebts you you become owned by that person and it often is described by at least cultural informants that i talked to as a, a sense of heavy indebtedness also 
a sad indebtedness you wish you could get out of someday, but it's kept undefined and you remain in that indebtedness. Uh, okay. I, I kind of see what you mean now because, um, I mean, okay, we, we're in Bangkok and like there's a lot of very wealthy people, but Thailand is not exactly a wealthy country. I mean, there's a lot of people who are just getting by and doing stuff like that. There's no like money saved up for, for like really expensive things. And, you know, our daughter's wedding rolls by and, you know, you or, or some kind of function like that comes around. You need money to come from somewhere and to, to finance this. And a lot of this is probably not through, you know, general, generally through banks and things like that. Some kind of patron is giving you this money. Is this is an example of how that works, isn't it? Sure. Like that's like, oh, he gave me money for that my father's heart heart sure. operation, and now I have to like show up on Sunday morning every day to like, every Sunday morning to like get what he wants done, something like that. You got it. And the rich get richer, and the poor stay poor. And again, this is sort of all just done without anybody knowing anything, because like you see a lot of Thai people just freely like living and spending and doing and. Like, wow, these guys seem to not have a care in the world, but is it because they've already racked up their debts elsewhere or are they going to rack up the debts? I guess this is the question. I'm not sure how to respond there. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's more of an open-ended thing because I feel like there, there is like a laissez-faire attitude and then it, that's fine. That's just how they are and that there is a benefactor out there. So. Do they do they find themselves in these positions, or do they expect to be in these positions where they like become indebted? You mean? Yeah, yeah. Because that's a very weird way of looking at it. But I think like it's, it's there's a long history of abuse of power. Okay. In this country, and so um, I think the ones who are on the wrong side of the stick, uh, or the the lower part of the of the uh, food chain, if you want to say it that way. Yeah. I think they're pretty numb to it all. They pretty much accept it, accept it and, and yeah. they don't like it. Yeah. But it's been life for them and for for their families for so long. Yeah. And there's tremendous debt. I mean, honestly, I think what would shock you is if you could, if we could really know the debt of, of the, the financial debt that people are, are in. And particularly the poor. Yeah. Uh, there's tremendous debt on their part, um, and relational and financial. I see. Yeah. And yeah. so when you're when you're needy, you're you're open to the overtures of people who are looking for ways to to get the most out to expand the, their influence. Okay. Well, yeah. That's. I, I mean, these are kind of like suspicions hidden on the like top layer over here and then they kind of make sense going further down but I think there are other things that I'm also very curious about generally and it actually starts with something in the title itself uh, the concept of face is like seen as a very Asian concept but it's really not a monolithic thing again um, what is it that people get wrong about face in Thailand? Why is it dif like maybe not a direct comp comparison of why it's different from faces, face the concept in like say Japan or anywhere else. But what do people, what is the number one thing people get wrong about the term face in, in, as a Western person or as an outsider coming to Thailand? Because I feel like that's something that we think we know, but we don't really know. There's no concrete definition. Maybe if I can just back up a, a little bit and talk about face itself. Um, yeah, why not? I am, a, I am a face scholar. Uh, my specialty is Thai face. 
Yeah. But I, uh, the thing that need to be human is to do what is called face work. Okay. What what does that mean? Is face, face work is what we're doing right now on, on, on one level. Okay. Uh, to be human is to understand that as particularly once you mature, you you constantly have decisions to make about how you will present yourself in public space. Okay. It's called self presentation. Uh, other scholars call it um, impression management. Sure. And we manage the impressions of others. We try to cast an image of ourselves, publicly speaking, yeah. that others will buy. It's always public relations, basically. Yeah, I mean, yes, yes, that's one way to, to, to talk about it. It's And, and uh, on a grand scale, it's like the spin doctors and people who need to tweak images for, for personalities and so forth. But we're all doing it. And I think it's inescapable because every single one of us is looking for what looking for the rewards of what productive face work brings. And that is, we want to know that we're lovable enough to be included and that we are competent enough to be respected. And it's a human, deep human desire that I think goes across all cultures. And so every culture has face. It's not called face. It's I think the term originated uh, many, many, many centuries ago um, in uh, in China. The yeah. idea of using face, the idea, the word face, actually, for the human face, to talk about human dignity. Yeah, because that's what you would tie it to in the West. He has his dignity, or he has his pride, or something right. like that. Right. Right. Sentence. Right. But so, but what we need to understand is that each yes, we're all doing face work. And there are face, we're all doing face in a sense. What is, what we really need to understand is that each, we can't assume that every country therefore is doing it the same way. Because every single locale has a different twist on it, a different approach to it. And um, I think there are just a lot of, you know, you asked the question earlier, and I can't remember exactly what it was, but. The idea is what, what's the number one thing that, that people misunderstand, you know, about time phase? Yeah. Probably the, the first one is just how dead serious ties are about this topic. Okay. And you, they look pretty easy going until you push them the wrong way. You push them the wrong way. And so. then you can see from it can go from zero to 100 pretty fast if you offend somebody and you can have an enemy for life. So, so honestly, I mean, some some of the writers, the sociologists, uh, Thai sociologists, have written about this, and really, faces it might be the most valuable possession of a Thai. Okay. So you're talking about not just touching something that's number twenty or number forty-seven or number sixty on the list of possessions or treasures. You're talking about number one. one. Okay. And so I think. We might uh, miscalculate that. That might be uh, misjudged or uh, by by people who are new arrivals here. Um, but also the other thing that's challenging is um, it's it's nuanced enough that we come to very superficial understandings of what it is. And it's oh, face just means that you can't uh, admit you made a mistake, or uh, you know. 
face is just pride. It's simple pride. Um, you can't correct somebody in front of other people. Right. You can't shout at somebody in front of other people. So there's yeah. maybe a real a simplification of the whole, whole deal. Um, but face is, is, is what gives meaning to so much of life for, for ties, and it's how they frame their reality. And so much so that this is the reason that it's been so invisible, in a sense, because it's what anthropologists call tacit knowledge. Ah, it's yeah. not heard this before. discussed, it's not, it's not verbalized, and it's not discussed and analyzed. And because of that, it's like fish in water. And so they just play by the rules. They learn them sort of without having been taught in a formal way. They learn the rules of face and face work. And the rest of us who arrive maybe later to the scene are trying to figure it all out. We're at a great disadvantage because it's, it's very, very complex. Um, so it's not as simple as, as we, we write it off to be. Right. It can't um, be easily defined. No, it's, it can't. It can't. But it's a lot more quantified and defined now, especially after my book. Right. Um, it has raised it to the discursive level for for those who will really, uh, you know, read it and uh, and then look for patterns and learn learn from there. Um, yeah. Um, there's very few things that a leader that is more precious to a leader than, than his face. And face is not just, you know, it's, it's complex. There's a bunch of words. Uh, there's sati, which is really, I have argued that for the most part, it is the idea of endogenous honor versus exogenous honor. So endogenous being inside. How much honor do I think I really have? It's what I define on yeah. the inside. And that, that's, that's, that's the foundation of Thai face. But then everything else, and there are four other abstract terms that form the constellation of Thai face. And those other four are different than Saksi, which is my own definition of how much honor I have, because they are rewarded by society. And when they're rewarded by society, even Thai leaders, I think, forget. They they become they get a sense of entitlement that once it's rewarded to them, they're always going to have it. Not true. If it can be awarded to you, it, it can, can also be taken from you. Yeah. And that's that is uh, what makes that's the vagaries of Thai face work is that you can so easily lose what you have gained. But the other four are um, honor, basic honor which we, I'll use the English term, or urkia. Uh, and that is generally, you think height, the dimension of height. How high are you, particularly in, a, in, a, in your title, in your expertise, whatever. Yeah. How, how gifted, how, how high are you in, in the pecking order? And then there's uh, chusian, which is how big is your stage? And that's more the idea of public acclaim. If you're so great, who knows about it? Yeah. I mean, you could be the best like insect researcher, but only that guy in your university knows about you. Right, so, exactly. And yeah. so that, that, and that's why the idea of a cone to explain all this came to me because cones have peaks. And so you have a peak of honor, like for your life. So I say everybody has a cone. We all have a cone, it's invisible. But the base of it, it's standing on the base of our, of our 
sexy or endogenous honor. And then on the outside, what you have is the height of the cone is Kia. At the very top is this thing called Barami. And very few leaders have true Barami. So Barami is that kind of moral strength slash virtuous ability. It is. And it's always considered honorable. It's always honored. If you have true Barami, you are treated with the greatest of honor. So is it a personality trait or is it again awarded to somebody? Like he's a very like thoughtful person. Therefore, his like, I mean, I'm trying to define it because I don't actually understand the concept. But stop me anytime you you can like help me out with this. So is it like a personality trait that 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 people have like a, a extra something that they, they defines them as even more successful? Or is it something that they, somebody has recognized that and and given that title to this person. Yeah, Person, certain aspects of, of personality might predispose us to become a, a leader or a person with Barami. Okay, but so what um, would those be, if you want me to be asking? Like, for example? Uh, uh, I think uh, there are just certain personalities that are a bit more kind. Okay. Um, truly kind and considerate, uh, fair, a sense of fairness. Okay. Um, so a benevolent leader. Yes, right? a benevolent leader, a benevolent father. Is really, it really comes from from the monarchy. I see. It comes from way back in the Sukhothai era, where King Ratnapanga was considered like the benevolent father of the nation. Sure. And uh, it's a very respected model. It was uh, King Rama the Nine, who was an incredible example of, of having Barami. But he, by no means, is the only leader to whom. Uh, followers uh, attribute Barami. I see. The the interesting thing about Barami is that it doesn't even reside in the leader. It resides in the hearts of those who respect the leader. Okay. And that's why once it's really rooted there and it's the real deal, it's very hard to root out and it's so enduring. It's one of the reasons it's so enduring. And that's the peak of this cone, if you think of it. And then there's one last really important one, you know. So we, we had uh, uh, Saksi. Yeah, we had Saksi, the endogenous honor, you have the Kia, which is the height, the, the honor itself, and the tip of honor is, is, is um, you know, moral goodness, uh, moral strength or accumulated goodness. And then there's Nata, and Nata is basically prestige. Prestige that's really linked to money and finances. Okay, so it's not like accomplishment of titles and things like that. It's like very wealthy, has a big jet, if you, a nice house. The only thing is, it's the most broad word that includes most of the others. Okay. So if you have Barami, you have Nata. If you have a lot of honor, you have Nata. Um, if, if you have money, a lot of money, then you definitely have not that. And so this is the bling, this is the, the, the shine, the, the thing that's meant to catch the eye of passerbys and make them think that you have honor. The only thing that we need to really understand about not that is this. It has zero, zero link to virtue. Although people with a lot of nata will be judged by many many others as having either having virtue or not having virtue. The, the, virtue is a scrupulous judge, and we never run run free of, of its judgment. 
but those who lack virtue and are filthy rich, uh, eventually people really to their faces show them honor and they hate their guts. I see. So it doesn't, it's, it's, it, that entire thing about like, the enduring feeling within is the opposite. It's almost like uh, a dislike for somebody that has actually accumulated as well, but actually is morally hollow. If you if if we were to take an extreme example of yeah. you know of this, I don't know if you've noticed this, but many 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 Thais are very good at hiding their emotions and their true feelings. Yeah. Or speaking their mind, and they know the game. They know the game. They know who they have to show honor to, and they know that there are consequences if they don't. But Deep in their heart, they know whether or not they truly think that's a person of honor. So, to me, not that is really cut loose from honor altogether. Yeah. But society doesn't play by those rules. If you've got a lot of money and you have the right look and you come up in the right car and you've got your posse or your entourage with you and you're throwing money around, people are going to show you honor. Uh, but it's a, it, to me, it's a, it's a cheap form of honor. The two things that are in the constellation of Taipei's that I have less respect for, really, is Nata, which is superficial appearance, mostly, and it's what you can do because of the financial resources you have. Well, I've always said, just because you have a bigger piece of pie doesn't make you a better person. Sure. You're not better than me just because you have more resources. And um, so that it's that piece, and it's also the piece of Chusian, which which is the breadth of you know how how, how wide this cone goes. How, you are. how big is your stage? You know how many people know about it. This is uh, linked to another term, which is fame, the whole idea of fame. And to me, fame is so unbelievably superficial. I mean, the people we idolize ultimately. Is, a, is like flying upside down. I, I don't understand the values of some of the people we idolize because although they're pretty to look at or they're fun to watch in a movie or they play really great on a football pitch or whatever the reason might be, ultimately speaking, I'm not sure they add that much other than a little bit of entertainment to, to, to the value of, of humankind. Sure. And so um, I have some pretty strong some strong feelings and all right when I first started with these five terms uh, yeah I'll stop talking about this soon but I get yeah. gets me turned on uh, on, on it gets me uh, you know my engines going yeah uh, these five terms I started and I said I kept hearing them, so then I started saying well listen so how are they that these are related right yeah they're all related okay tell me how they're different oh don't don't even ask me that I can't they're all they're all tied together, and some of them say, you know, you're gonna have to buy me some some Tylenol, you know, after after I work on this one, because I can't figure it out. So I said, okay, let's just say they're all the same. So if I have not died automatically, if I have the prestige, I automatically have bottomy or or moral strength. No, 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 you can't say that. So then I said, well, then they have to be different, right? And that's how I pulled it away through long interviews, ethnographic interviews. I pulled the meanings apart. And in pulling the meanings apart, what was so valuable to me was this, this insight. Thai leaders who, who work the rules of face, they don't want these things clarified. They like it when they're all bunched and bundled together because what it means is they can get ahead without being virtuous. 
so they can have their cake and eat it too. Mm. But my, I argue time and time again that you cannot cut true honor, uh, you, can't, you cannot cut it loose from virtue. It is tethered to virtue. And so uh, the virtue is the judge of, of all judgments of human honor and worth. Okay. Yeah, that, I mean, it, it makes sense when you tell a child these things as well. It's just that somehow we decided to make it complicated and it gets lost in all of this. Um, so what you do on a, on a daily, weekly, monthly basis actually is also uh, teach a lot of students about uh, these concepts as well. So what is it that uh, uh, they like to ask you or understand about this? <laughs> I, I teach uh, at, the, at an MBA school and I have two courses, one uh, MBA level, the other executive MBA level. And I think, I think what they enjoy the most is um, exploring concepts that they actually don't understand at a very deep level. And because they are emerging leaders themselves, it gives them a whole new way to look at opportunities of leadership and actually what pathway are they going to choose. And what paradigm are they going to be <clears throat> partial to in their building of power, in personal power in, in future years? So um, I asked them to do presentations after reading my book that presents certain the themes of certain chapters uh, in, in group presentation. And I think that those are the richest experiences in, in talking about. It. But this is really the smaller part, smallest part of what I do. I, I, okay. That's just a one week, one or one or two six-week uh, modules, mostly on weekends right. per year. The rest of the time, I'm, I'm an executive coach, and I. So, what does that mean, like, to a person? You, how do you explain the the job of an executive coach? Yeah, coaching is great. Um, that, well, first, certainly, the word executive means you're probably dealing with more senior leaders in organizations. Sure. Um, yeah. Not always the top leader, not always the CEO, but but. Uh, you know, high-ranking leaders. And um, the idea of coaching is, coaching is helping a person to see his or her own blind spots. Helping a person to learn what their assumptions are and how their assumptions many times are actually dysfunctional beliefs that keep them from breaking through to another level. Coaching is not giving answers. It's asking good questions and every once in a while profound questions. Coaching is not telling somebody what to do. It's helping that person to discover how insanely creative they actually are if they think outside the box about, about um, uh, different ways of approaching a problem. Coaching to me is 10% list, uh, 10% uh, talking and 90% listening or 20, 80 at the most. Um, and the whole idea is that it, it really helps leaders, particularly who are plateaued or frozen at a certain level of leadership and they can't, they, people see the potential in them, but they can't break through to the next level because of certain things tying them down. And they, through the course of several coaching sessions, they discover what that is. And they become much, usually, much more well-rounded and at times actually significantly change things about their leadership style that take them to the next level. So that's what I'm doing in, that, in, that, in coaching with, with uh, the executives. executives. Okay. 
so we talked we talked about the uh, Thai leadership and the way a lot of these structures work. But uh, when we're, when you're preparing Thai leaders to go and manage other multicultural teams, what are the strengths that Thai leaders tend to bring? Because we've talked a lot about these things and they seem like very grim topics, but there's got to be like some upside to a lot of these things as well. Like what is it that Thai leaders do very well or, or, or are very creative with? That's a good question. Um, hmm. I think that, uh, I think maybe patience. Okay. Patience is one, um, I don't know if you've noticed, but Thais are incredibly patient people. That's true. Compared to a lot of us who have yeah. come uh, to live here. Uh, and it, it, they'll put up with incredible amounts of, of, of stuff. And as a leader, you know, patience is a really good virtue. And I think, I think that's one that I, that I can think of. Um, uh, I am trying not to generalize too much here. Um, I think, I think respect for, uh, proper respect for authority, is something they bring. Yeah. Um, it's actually something that uh, the answer to that question is actually still emerging right now. Okay. Well, that's be exciting. Right? Be because I mean, can, there are so many, so many gifted, so many brilliant and gifted Thai leaders. You know, leading at various levels of society, Thai society right now. But the question comes, in a global setting, how do their values play? That's the million dollar question right there. Okay. And they are discovering as we move forward, you know, we are discovering it together, um, what, what the answers are to that. There, there are, uh, when I say patient, there's a phrase called you know, and, and it's this idea of deference uh, to others. It's a strength and it can also be a weakness. Uh, it's a strength for cultural intelligence because with cultural intelligence, you need to avoid knee-jerk responses to things. You need to not immediately respond to something strange and new and you need to think it through. Well, part of Pong Krenchai is you don't give an immediate answer to anything. You're kind of quiet and you're processing it. And, and that, to me, gives that just that little synapse of time there. Uh, it, it, it gives ties an opportunity to think and practice cultural intelligence. So I would see that as one one real virtue. But I I'm discovering that many 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 times that I talk to, even those already doing global business, are really quite monocultural still. Okay. They look at the world through their lens and interpret it through a Thai lens with Thai values. And it takes, it take, it, it, that's a disastrous uh, formula for, for moving forward in, in the global situation. Because the Thai, the Thai system of doing things is also very unique. I mean, like every country is unique, but Thailand is even more unique because of many factors. So for them to like expect other people to get it right away is kind of difficult, right? Is that something that you have to spend time uh, trying to explain or 
Is that something that they know, but they're just not changing right away? Mm-hmm. I guess we'll have to we'll have to see. I guess it has yeah. to emerge. I suppose. Well, uh, I, this is these are my concerns. These are just a couple, few of my concerns as as ties face outward. Okay, you know what tie means? Tie means free. Okay, I did not. Quam bin tie means it's, you know that idea of freedom. Okay, yeah. And so tie means free, and they're so proud that they were free of those dirty colonialists. Yeah. And in many ways, they, they should. They were very shrewd in the way they gave off parcels of land at time to the French, etc., etc. If you look back in history, they've just they have many, many good reasons to be very proud that they kept those foreign bastards out. Um, however, if you think about that visually, it's like someone keeping your your arms out and keeping people at bay and that doesn't play in, in a global situation. Yeah. It's the divorce now. It's you've got to learn how to engage. Yeah. And be yourself, but stretch yourself and engage. And that means you've got to you've got to put some of your most basic values up for grabs in the sense, at least up for the judgment as are they a liability or a handicap or are they an asset in moving forward? And I, I think there there are probably uh, for uh, the four areas that come to my mind that I think globalism is going to force at least the Thai, big Thai companies looking outward. It's going to force uh, script, them to scrutinize these areas. The first one is this Quam Grenzai, which is uh, the idea of a reluctance to, uh, to speak up. Um, um, you don't want to do anything to disturb Harmony. You don't want to make. You don't want to insult somebody or shame shame them in any way. Or you don't want to make a a jerk of yourself if you speak up too quickly and it and you make a bad impression. So Quam Grenzai is this reservedness and the quietness, and, and it's behind a lot what a lot of foreign managers it drives them crazy because they'll say they're wanting ideas, they're wanting feedback, but actually everyone's just kind of waiting for a minute. Yeah, and then it's quiet, and then they misinterpret the quiet as saying they're on board, but they're not on board, they're just not speaking up. So and what's the number one thing to do here? Just wait for the, or as the, as the foreign manager, do you just wait more to see if somebody says anything, or do you encourage no. them, or? No, that's a bad move. Well, I think what, no one perfect answer, but you've got to build trust. When you okay. build trust, and then the, the deal is too, if you really want to know their opinion, probably don't ask them in front of other people. Of other people. You go and you say, you know, tell me what you think about this. And you, if you build enough trust, then they, they begin to, it, it begins to elicit, you know, mm. some of their opinions about it. And sort of just set it up like, hey, I'm really asking you, you know, I trust you to tell me this, and don't worry, I won't tell anybody. Can you just tell me what it is? Is that sort of the kind of thing you have to kind of set up the situation, you know? Yeah, I mean, trust, trust is what makes the world go around. It's a, trust is the number one, building trust is the number one job of any leader moving into in any new space. Mm-hmm. And, um, the reason I bring this up is, it really is a detriment in terms of ties gaining voice, even in ASEAN. Um, and also, it gives an impression that and it's a misjudgment in many cases that ties across the board are not competitive. They're not. They don't want it hard enough. 
Yeah, they don't want it enough, you know. Yeah, I've heard that a lot. Yeah, and so, and it's a judgment, it's a misjudgment in, in many cases, but it, there's still this general impression given. So I think there needs, there needs to be a, a, re, a return to the whole idea of quantum brain time. And here's the key. If you're dealing with a French boss, you need to play by his rules, which means if he, he likes a pushback, and as offensive as it feels to you or as awkward as it feels to you, you need to learn to push back to your French boss. So it, consider consider the context. It's all context driven, and so ties there's ties often act as though well I can't change myself. I'm just we're all franchised. No, no, you aren't. You have choices to make, and and I think that's one thing that needs to be addressed. The other is hierarchy, and the reason I bring that up is just how comfortable they are with power distance between different levels of a, of a hierarchy, and it's quite high in Thailand still. Yeah. The problem with it. Highly hierarchical organizations are not agile. Yeah, they take a long time to make things happen. And there's so much disruption now yeah. in the world, especially in retail, but I mean, many, many other areas of, of business that you can, you've got to learn to move more quickly. And so I believe that organizations are going to become, they're going to be forced to become Get flat, flatter, flatter yeah. to be more competitive. That's the second thing. The third thing is face itself, because um, face teaches every, the face principles teaches everybody that a mistake as a leader, a mistake is shameful. Even as a follower, a big mistake is shameful. And we, in my company, we have a no shame policy on that. Make it very clear, this is how we roll. Mistakes are learning opportunities. And we all come clean in mistakes, we all admit mistakes, and then we work through how can we fix this thing? What can we learn from it? How can we not repeat this? And it's a really, a, I say this because if there is not freedom to fail, there will be very little innovation. Yeah. And without innovation, how are you going to keep pace and compete, and be yeah. compete on, the, on the global scene? So that's another one. And the last one I think of is that I think it's going to, it's going to be the, the good old boy system of, of, of you know, influence or what I call instrumental exchange, uh, where you you build um, your power over others because you indebt them relationally. It's going to have to change. It's going to have to become more of a meritocracy, where you actually you earn your way through. And the beautiful thing, I really, the beautiful thing about a Barami leader is that he is a leader who will naturally build a meritocracy. He honors those whom, or he or she, it doesn't have to be a he, honors those whom, uh, to whom honor is due, and reprimands those that need to be reprimanded without crushing them, but always points to the virtuous, the virtuous way ahead. And and so, Barami uh, leaders, um, under a Barami kind of leadership, the right leaders rise for the right reasons. Whereas under the other one, it's the suck-ups, it's the ones who have been most useful to the leader uh, above them who eventually go up the food chain. And that is, and oftentimes they're just mimicking the way they were treated. They're exploited by their leader, and so that when they gain power, they turn around and exploit the next people down. To me, it's, it's, it's a really bad approach to trying to create the most fair, uh, 
and competent leaders for society. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's there, there's a lot to take from this system. And I think your book will probably frame it and encapsulate as much of these concepts as we can all understand. And I highly recommend everyone, as I'm going to do next week, buy the book, which is The Way Thais Lead Face as Social Capital. Uh, Dr. Persons, do you have anything else to add? Do you have anything else you want to leave, some, leave us with before we, uh, we, we say goodbye today? I guess I'd just say if you're new, if you're new to Thailand, welcome. Uh, it's a fascinating, wonderful place to live with insanely good food and uh, very polite and friendly people. But just, uh, I would say, hold your judgments and give it time to be fair in your judgments of the things that you like and don't like. Uh, just give it some time and write it out and uh, always give others the benefit of the doubt. And remember, they're, they're human beings like you who are trying to find meaning and uh, trying to find stability and safety in life. And, uh, and yeah, so you know, welcome to the, welcome to the and insanely good food, we should say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but welcome, welcome to this and, uh, yeah, be thoughtful and respectful, uh, and understand that, you know, it all comes back to face. We all want to know that we are lovable enough to be included and uh, we are respectable enough for, uh, we are valuable enough that other people, you know, will respect us. Nothing wrong with that. It's nothing just wrong a basic with that. core value, a, yep. a, a core longing. Yeah, nothing wrong with that at all. I, mean, I totally agree. Uh, thank you so much for your time. I learned a lot today and I'm sure everyone listening did as well. And uh, yeah, please buy the book. We'll leave a link in the description. Thank you again. Thank you very much. And that's it from Brood in Bangkok for this episode. If you like the show, please go to iTunes and leave it a five-star rating. If you would like to find out more about the show, you can go to broodinbangkok.com and the website will redirect you to more information about the podcast, show notes, and more background information about our guests and anything else you want to know about the show or me. Until next time. <laughs>